The last several weeks I've been preaching on just people running into hardship in their lives, and I've had so much feedback from folks saying, that's right where I am. I needed that. So uh, I, I decided to continue that theme. Last week I preached a message on what to do when you don't know what to do. And this morning I want to bring a message called um, Lessons from an Impossible Situation. How many of you have ever been through something that you didn't think you were going to make it through? You ever been through something like that? Did you learn anything from it? You know, the bummer is when you don't learn from it, then there's a good chance you get to go through it again. So my suggestion would be to learn from it. <laughs> Amen? And so this morning in the, in the book of Daniel, we've gotten to the place where what has happened is God told the nation of Israel in the book of Leviticus that he wanted a sabbatical year. That is, every 70 years, he wanted them to give a year to him. And they hadn't done that. And so now they're going into captivity for 70 years. God, understand that, that God is in charge of what he wants to be in charge of. And God chose, he told them, this is what you're going to do. They agreed to do it. They didn't do it. Now he's holding them accountable. So there's a man named Nebuchadnezzar, and in, I think it's 609, at the Battle of Carchemish, he defeated a pharaoh named Pharaoh Necho. I always think of Necho as those little nasty candies. You put those in, and it you know, tastes like toothpaste. You know what I'm talking about? But Pharaoh Necho was the leader in Egypt, and really what, what changed the, the whole world's political system was when Nebuchadnezzar defeated uh, Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. But that also led to the siege of Jerusalem. And so when the children of Israel are carried off, you have the three Hebrew children and Daniel are taken into Babylon. And now this little city-state of Babylon is ruling the world. They are ruling the world. And God has ordained that He would have representatives of His in that kingdom. And young people, I really recommend that you read the book of Daniel because what you have are three young men and one a little bit older than them who were raised right. They had godly parents and they worshiped the one true God. And then in a hostile environment and a hostile atmosphere, they were willing to serve the Lord. And now sometimes you guys, you go to school and it's hard. I mean, it's hard to stand for the Lord sometimes when you have a lot of people around you that are mocking what you're doing and don't want to do it. But Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of guy that would roast his own officers over an open flame when they didn't do what he said. You guys don't have to worry about that, right? And so when he would do, he would also peel people alive. He'd peel the skin off of them and He's a wicked, mean individual. Well, that's the ruler that Daniel is going to go in and face. So this is an impossible situation. I want to say a couple of things about the book of Daniel before we go into it. I've mentioned to you before that in 1 Corinthians 10.32, the Bible says, Give none offense, neither to the Jew, the Gentile, nor to the church of God. So there are three different people groups that the Bible deals with. The Jews, and we know who those are, and the Gentiles, that's anyone who's not a Jew. But then Jesus Christ established the church. And when you're saved, you become a part of the church, which is His body. And every saved person is a part of the church of God. And what do I mean by saved? That is a person who understands that they're a sinner and that they deserve to go to hell, but who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who came, He was born of a virgin, He lived a sinless life on this earth, and then he died on the cross to pay for our sin. And then he was buried for three days and three nights. He rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, that proved that he was, is, and always will be God. That he paid for our sin. And if you'll believe that and ask him to save you, repenting of your sin, what does it mean to repent of your sin? It's to realize that your sin is bad enough to take you to hell and that it's a violation against a holy and a righteous God. If you'll repent of that sin and you'll go to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and ask Him to save you, to be your Savior, He will. Everyone who does that is saved. When you're saved, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Bible says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. So the Holy Spirit, when you get saved, places you into the body of Christ. 
What does that mean? It means you're in Jesus. The Bible says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that's how when you're saved, you know that you can never be lost. You can never go to hell because you are already with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So every saved person is a part of the church of Christ. So, and I'm not talking about the denomination church of Christ. I'm talking about actual, the Jesus Christ, His body, the church which is His body as the book of Colossians says. So now, what are we coming to? You've got the Jews. Those are the people of God that He has chosen to be His nation, His people. He's not given up on His people yet. Amen? Gentiles, that's everybody that's not a Jew. But now in this period called the church age, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until He returns to get us, in the church, we're not Jews and Gentiles. We're the church of God. The Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, barbarian nor Scythian. We're all one in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that there are no haves and have-nots in Christ's body? You know, I'm the pastor. All that means is I get to do this for a living. I get to teach you the Bible for a living. Other than that, I have no more access to God than you do. I have no more access to God than a seven-year-old who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? So there's no hierarchy here. It's we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ if we're saved. If you're not saved, if you died today, if you're not sure that you're going to heaven, you need to get that settled because there's only two options, heaven and hell. And Jesus Christ wants you to go to heaven. The Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you to be saved. So when you're saved, you become a part of that church of God. So those three people groups, God wants all of us to know what's coming in the future. And that's what separates Christianity and the Word of God from every other religion. The Book of Mormon can't tell you what's coming. The Quran can't tell you what's coming. The, the Indian literature can't tell you what's coming. The Bible tells you exactly what's coming. And God wanted that information to go to all three people groups. So, for the Jews, He gave the book of Ezekiel. For the Gentiles, He gave the book of Daniel. For the church of God, He gave the book of Revelation. So, here in the book of Daniel... What is happening is you have Gentile kingdoms that arise. How many of you have seen that phrase in the Bible called the times of the Gentiles? Have you seen that? The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. So we're seeing the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, and that's where God gives us the information about all of these Gentile nations. And we're not going to deal with any of that today. But I want you to know the context of where we're going in the book of Daniel. And it's such an amazing thing. What we need to understand is the reason that people get so messed up in theology is because of a term called the millennium. The millennium. Now, the millennium is it's from two Latin words, one meaning a thousand and the other meaning years. So Jesus Christ promised, and the book of Revelation teaches us, that there will be a 1,000-year period of time that Jesus Christ rules on this earth, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's what the Bible teaches. And, and there's no doubt that's what it teaches. It's just what it says, okay? So let's, let's just go there just for a minute to see if the Bible says anything about the thousand-year reign of Christ. Go to Revelation. Keep your place in Daniel 2. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Because what you'll have... I heard someone on the Bible Answer Man years ago. Her name was Gretchen Passantino. And she said that there's only one place in the Bible where... A thousand years is mentioned. And so a lot of people think that, and they don't believe in the millennium. They don't believe in the kingdom. So let's look at this. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hand on the, old, on, on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? Okay, there's one. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the what? A thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ how long? A thousand years. Okay, you, got, you guys got weak on that. Okay, got to keep up with me. I'll have to start over. All right. 
Now look what it says in verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again till the what? We're finished. But you guys don't want me to start over. That was awesome. (laughs) This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Now there's a lot of language that I could explain. I'm not going to take the time to do that this morning. I just want to make this point. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. How long? And when the what? So what do you think the emphasis of that text is? A thousand years. So when you hear people say that the thousand years isn't really taught in Scripture, liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay? I mean, it's just... I guess if you're a scholar, you can go and say, well, the thousand years doesn't really mean a thousand years. That means butterflies. So I guess if you go to college long enough, you can learn to make things say what they really don't say. But if you're just going to believe the Bible... You have to believe that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And all of those who are saved, who are part of that first resurrection, all of us who are saved, we're going to rule and reign with Christ on this earth for a thousand years. How many of you just read that? Seriously, that's what you just read. Am I making it up or is it what we just read? We, We just read it. And so let's go back to the book of Daniel. And I want you to understand that all of Christianity is divided up into three groups on this subject. There are those who believe in the pre-millennial return of Christ. That is that Jesus Christ is going to return before the thousand years. And according to the passage we just read, Jesus Christ returns before the thousand years. The reason we believe that is because that's exactly what the Bible says. Those are the exact words of Scripture. There's a second group. It's called post-millennialism. The post-millennialists believe that Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the millennium. And that the church, that we, we conquer the world for Christ. We bring peace and righteousness to the world to prepare the world for Jesus to return. Doesn't that sound kind of like Islam with the Mahdi and the return of the, the, the uh, 12th Imam, all of those kinds of things. So that teaching of post-millennialism doesn't come from the scripture. It comes from something called Reformed theology or covenant theology which none of that comes from the Bible. All right? If you're going to take a literal reading of the Scripture, you'll believe that Jesus Christ is going to come at the beginning of the kingdom. Now, there's a third group. So you have premillennialism. That's pre, Jesus Christ comes before. There's post-millennial, and that means that Jesus Christ comes at the end of the millennium. And then there's the amillennialists. And the amillennialist, ah, means nothing. And so there is no millennium. That's what they believe. There's no such thing as the millennium. Now, or there's no such thing as a thousand years. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the Bible just say that it's going to be, Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years? Does it say that? So somebody who says there's not a millennium, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So someone says there's not a millennium, that there's not really a kingdom. They're not getting that from the Bible. They're imposing something on the scriptures. Are you all following me? I know this is getting a little deep. This is theology class or whatever. But you need to understand that the book of Daniel makes it completely clear that you're going to have these Gentile kingdoms rule the world, and then Jesus Christ is going to come and smash those kingdoms. That's what the Bible says. And he's going to establish his own kingdom, which on earth will be for a thousand years, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will reign in righteousness for all eternity. And those of us who are saved will be with him. Now, if you're not familiar with that information, you need to understand the Bible is that specific. It's that specific. And it's not some preacher's interpretation of it. It is what the Bible actually says. Okay? So I want to read something to you. Every person on this earth, saved or lost, takes one of these three positions. Premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. And here's what it is. Every, every person on earth, saved or lost, takes one of these three positions on Christ's kingdom. First, Christ will bring in His kingdom. That's us. Amen? Or man will bring in the kingdom, or there will be no kingdom. Everybody falls under that. Either we believe that Jesus Christ is going to bring in his kingdom, or we believe man's going to bring in the kingdom, or there is no kingdom. Do what you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Everybody falls into one of those three positions. Practically speaking, though, it really comes down to premillennialism and postmillennialism. Every politician, evolutionist, and philosopher, and most religious leaders on this earth are 
and have been trying to bring in the kingdom without the king. Of course, it goes by many different names, progress, the New Deal, the war on poverty, utopia, the war to end all wars, Marxism, socialism, redistribution of wealth, civil rights, women's lib, gay liberation, integration, Obamacare, (laughs) making the world a better place to live in, the Third Reich, peace in our time, etc. In the end, though, they are all merely attempts of the prodigal to renovate the hog pen. Is that one of the most accurate statements you've ever read? Now, let me say this. I'm thankful for social progress, right? How many of you are thankful that we don't have slavery? Praise God. I'm glad I'm not a slave. You know, my people were slaves, Irish people. If you've never read it, read the history of the Irish coming to America. It's a bummer. How many of you know Chinese people? Anybody know anybody from China? You did not want to be from China in America. Right, And you certainly didn't want to come over on a slave ship from Africa. right? I am very thankful for social progress. Praise the Lord for that. Now, I think I'm going to try not to digress too long on this. Let me just make this statement. It's Christianity that ended slavery. That's the history of it. And so we have a world that hates God. We have a world that hates God's people that wants to impugn Christianity for slavery. So, we have to be honest. Were there Christians involved in slavery? Yes. But who was it that ended it? Christians. Christians. If not for... Would would Islam end slavery? No, because they're still doing it. Understand that it was Muslims that sold the slaves to come here. And they're still doing that. Okay, so it's Christianity that ended slavery. It's very important that you understand that. I'm thankful for social progress, but Marxism is not social progress. Marxism is social slavery. You have the haves and the have-nots, and that's not God's plan at all, never has been. The Bible says that God despises a false balance, and that's a false balance. The Bible also says if man would not work, neither should he eat. God created us to be incentive-driven. Lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. What does that mean? It means if you're saved, do good works, and God will reward you in heaven for doing those good works. Is that what the Bible says? And some, How many of you have ever felt bad for doing something good, hoping you get a reward? Have you ever felt bad for that? I have, and yet that's the way that God arranged it. You know, they have this idea, you're not supposed to do anything for yourself. Well, God arranged it that way. He said, if you do this, I'll do this. That's a good deal, right? So what God has established is a certain economic system. It's called capitalism, where God created capital and invested it in people. And then those people invest that capital. And in a free trade situation where if I have something of value, I can trade it to you either for money or for your work. Right? So let's say that I have um, a piano and you need a piano. And, but I need somebody to paint my house, but I don't have any money. I can give you the piano. You can come paint my house. You get the piano. And what does it cost us? Whatever the cost of the material is and the time and labor. That's what it's cost. That's capitalism. If I take that labor from you without paying for it, that's called stealing. Right? And so in a, in a, in a properly established system, We come together and we make an agreement on what something is worth. And unless you have something imposed on you, it works tremendously. And what has that done? That that system of capitalism, it has raised people from having nothing to where their ability to work in a field is based on the favor of the king or the Lord who owns the field. Vassalism and... All of that, all of that entire system that people lived under forever until we understood this concept of private property, right? Now, zoning laws destroy private property, but that's another discussion. It's really important that that you get this. It's so important that God has established an order to things, but man in the name of progress, is trying to bring in some kind of utopia. But here, utopia is a word that was created by Sir Thomas More, and utopia literally means no place. 
It doesn't exist. So what you have in the world is you'll have academics that take the, the failings of the United States of America and compare it to this non-existent utopia. And then it doesn't meet up. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Young ladies, you have this same problem. You'll see a magazine. You'll see some woman on the cover of this magazine. And you say, well, I can't look like this. Neither does she. It's called airbrush and surgery. <laughs> okay? It, it, it's really important. Some of those ladies are never going to die because they're all, it's all fake. <laughs> it's not real. It's a utopia. And so that's the world that we live in. It's a fake and an artificial world. What God wants us to do is be real. And God wants us to understand that He has a plan for this world. And regardless of which petty dictator or despot arises and becomes powerful, these kingdoms rise and these kingdoms fall and God's plan just continues. Everything is going to end up exactly as God said it. The book of Daniel makes that clear. Now let's go to Daniel chapter uh, 2. And I want you to see something. Let's just start reading through the chapter. So verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the, astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. So a couple of things on this. There's different groups, magicians and astrologers. So magicians, you know what that is, astrologers, those that are trying to tell the future by the stars. And the sorcerers, sorcerers, the Greek word for sorcerer in the New Testament is pharmakeia, and it's drugs. So these are people that are going to use drugs and have visions, you know, Jim Morrison types, all right? Um, you guys don't know who that is. Old people. How many of you old people know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, so they're going to use drugs to tell his dreams, so for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. <laughs> And my spirit, a joke came up, but I'm going to keep going. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king. So the Chaldeans, there's an area called Chaldea, but these are a specific group from Chaldea who were known for um, being able to determine the future, those types of things. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. In Syriac, it's very interesting. So from... Daniel 1.1 through Daniel 2.3, it's written in Hebrew. From now, from verse 4 until the end of chapter 7, now it's written in Aramaic, which is the Gentile language. Aramaic was similar to Hebrew, but this is a different language. Why? Because this is God's message to the Gentiles. It's such an interesting thing. Syriac and Aramaic are very similar. So after the resurrection of Christ and the New Testament is, is finished around 100 A.D., 150, the Bible's translated into Old Latin because the western part of the world spoke that Old Latin. The eastern part of the world spoke Syriac. So in 157, the Bible was translated into Syriac. And that Old Latin was used until it was all the way through for a thousand years until it was corrupted by Jerome around 400. But you had these people using the old Latin all the way through for a thousand years. The Syriac language was used for another thousand years in the eastern part of the world. And God, it's just amazing. God wants his people to have the scriptures. But Satan hates the Bible. So a man named Philoxenus corrupted the Syriac in 508 with what's called the, Philo the, the, the Philoxenian Peshitta. I know you need to know that. You're going to be able to sleep tonight because you know that. But I just want you to see that God had the Bible in Hebrew, He had it in Greek, He had it in Old Latin, He had it in Syriac, and those were the major languages of the people. And from those languages, they were translated into the language wherever a missionary went and preached the gospel. He took the Bible and put it in that language. Isn't that wonderful? But you see that word Syriac right here in the book of Daniel. All right? And just to make it simple, Syriac is the language of Syria. Does that make sense? Where's, is Tony here? Tony Grongse? He's downstairs. I asked, he's from Yap. And I asked Tony one time, I said, Tony, what do they speak in Yap? He said, Yapese. <laughs> I said, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so Syriac is what they speak in Syria. All right, so verse 4. 
Then spake the Chaldeans to the king. And yesterday he was helping us at the house for a little bit. And uh, he and uh, Pastor Nathan were carrying out a, a cabinet. And he said, uno, dos, tres, that Pastor Nathan said. I said, what's that in, in yappies, Tony? He said, one, two, three. I said, okay. <laughs> it's really funny. All right. Back, this is an ADD sermon if there ever was one. All right. So this king is such a nice guy. Look at verse 5. Uh, verse 4. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. That's a tough boss. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that ye would gain the time because ye see the thing is gone from me. They're, they're trying to buy time. So here's the deal. He's calling their bluff. You have these guys that are supposed to be able to tell the future, know everything that's going on, and if he just told them the dream, they could make up an interpretation. But he says, don't only give me the interpretation, give me the dream. That's a tough job. Now look at what it says in verse 9. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered, before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, or ruler that asks such a thing of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's right about their gods. Right? Verse 12. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. That's a severe layoff. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain because Daniel and the three Hebrew children, they were part of the wise men. Now we have an impossible situation. So now, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names, now they are required to tell the king his dreams. They're required to give the interpretation of it. But nobody on earth can do that. No one can do it. It's an impossible situation. So the, rest, the request of the king, it's an impossible request, but it's also an ignorant request. He, he believes that there is some kind of magic on earth that can tell him the future. How many of you know people that read their horoscope every day? They think there's some kind of magic on this earth that's going to help them get their life ordered. It's an impossible request and it's an ignorant request. But the response of the wise men is funny. The first one is they respond with incredulity. They say, oh, this is ridiculous. And then they respond with arrogance. They're going to tell the king that he's foolish for asking the question. That's a bad idea. But what about the reverence of the Hebrews? So when, when Daniel finds out about this, what happens? I want to tell you something first that's fun. Daniel's name in Babylon is Belteshazzar. That's the name that, that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. But his name is Daniel. And you see, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, his name means beloved of the Lord. Mishael who is as God. That's what his name means. And Azariah means the Lord is my help. Belteshazzar, for Daniel, that's the prince of Bel. Shadrach means illuminated by the sun god. Meshach means who is like unto the moon god. Abednego, a servant of Nego, a shining fire. And that's why they all went by Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. I guarantee you they didn't call each other 
a name that's worshiping a false god. And so what does Daniel do? Look at his response. The first thing he does is he he responds with a confident reverence. Look at verse uh, 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. So Arioch was not only captain of the king's guard, he was the head executioner. Okay? And the king, he, so he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king that Arioch made the thing known to Daniel? Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. How's that for boldness? Why did he believe that? Why did he know he could do that? Because he knew he was, there, he was there as God's representative. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and his companions. Look at what it says. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. That Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What did they know? They knew they were different. They knew that they were different. They responded with a confident reverence and then a committed reverence. They said, look, the whole world may die. We're going to stand for our king. Everyone in our area may die. We're going to stand for the one true God. That's what they said they were going to do. But then I want you to see the childlike reverence that they had. Do you see what it says in verse 18? That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven. The God of heaven, you might want to mark that in your Bible, that's a, that's a captivity title for God, the God of heaven, and, or the God in heaven. It occurs nine times in the book of Daniel, six times in the book of Ezra, four times in the book of Nehemiah. So those are captivity books in the scriptures. The first time it occurs is in Second Chronicles 36, which is making reference to the captivity. So that phrase, the God in heaven, it's a specific phrase that the Jews would use to identify God while they were in captivity. What did that mean? They trusted Him in their bad time. So what are some lessons that we're going to learn from this? Number one, when you're in an impossible situation, do you have confidence in the God that you worship? Do you have confidence in Him? Do you maintain reverence for Him? That's what Daniel and his three compadres did. Now, I want you to see they had this childlike reverence, but look at the calmness. How many of you, when you're in trouble, it's hard for you to sleep? Any of you? Would you raise your hands? Man, that's me. I lay down and I'll start dreaming about what's going on and I wake up and there's, there's no more sleep. Look at Daniel. Look at what happens. Verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. What did Daniel do? He went and talked to his friends, they prayed, and he went to sleep. Daniel's one of these guys that was able to sleep. He went to sleep in the lion's den. <laughs> right? Daniel had no problem sleeping. And you know what's interesting? Daniel, there are two people in the Bible, other than Jesus Christ, that there's nothing negative said about. Joseph and Daniel. Daniel, in the worst of circumstances, had tremendous confidence and calm reverence. For the God that was in charge. Can I, I, I had a, my cup this morning. I had this Pastor Nathan that got it for me. Have you seen the British thing, um, keep calm and carry on? It says, I can't keep calm. I'm the pastor. That's what my mug this morning says. Man, it's so hard for me to stay calm and, and rest. You know, you can't function right without rest. Right? But when things get busy and you need to rest, you can't calm down enough to rest. And it's just this circle that goes on and you make everybody around you miserable. Daniel didn't have that problem. How about you? How about me? The calmness. Daniel just went to sleep. Calm reverence. And then look at what happens. Look at verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. What is the responsibility of believers in the face of trouble? We looked at it last week. We'll look at it right now. Praise. Praise. Can you praise God? I was listening to that song, uh, I guess it was yesterday. I'll praise Him in the storm. I'll praise Him in the storm. Can you praise God in the storm? Or do you have to wait for the deliverance? You see, God gave Daniel the answer, but that didn't mean the king was going to believe him. 
Because I think, and you find out later on in the, in the book why, I think that the king did remember his dream. He just wanted to test his magicians. He wanted to test his wise men. So when Daniel goes in, if the king remembers the dream differently than what God had given Daniel, Daniel could still die. But Daniel praised the Lord because God had answered his prayer. Do you know that God does speak to people in dreams? I think He still speaks to people in dreams. Now, you have to interpret your dream in light of the Scriptures. If, you're, if your dream is ever anything different than the Word of God, you're in a problem. And those who have the Scriptures, I don't think that God deals with it that much. But you'll hear about people in Muslim nations today who they have a dream that directs them to the God of the Bible, and they go to the God of the Bible and they find Jesus Christ. You hear about How many of you have heard those stories of things happening like that? It, it happens today. And so God spoke to him and to, to Daniel in a dream, and Daniel knew that it was from God. And look at what the Bible says in verse 19. Then was Daniel, or then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And now look at what this says. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O God, God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Isn't that a great thing to praise God that way? He raises up kings and he takes them down. How many of you think the king wants to hear that? No. But now look at what happens. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. So see, he's not only the leader of the wise men, but he is also the executioner, or the leader of the king's men, but he's also the executioner. And he says this. He went in and said uh, thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So I want to teach you something about bureaucrats. Arioch is a bureaucrat. So Daniel finds out the information, goes to Arioch, and he says, take me to the king. He takes him to the king, and he tell, Daniel tells the king, I'll get the answer. He goes back and gets the answer. He goes back to Arioch. Who, who is instigating the conversation? Daniel, right? Look at what Arioch says. Verse 5, 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. He wants to take credit for it, right? What's interesting is he must have really trusted Daniel. So interesting. I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And I love this. So Daniel, he responded with praise. But look at this. He had a responsibility to be humble. Do you know anything you get from God is not from you? Look at what Daniel said. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? Now, here's what I think was going on. I think all those guys are right here. And he's standing up here saying, Hey, these guys can't give you the answer. But my God can. And I think that's where that song came from. Oh, God, oh, oh, know what we're going to do. The king loves Daniel more than me and you. How many remember Veggie Tales? Oh, no, what you going to do? Gotta get him out of here. Right? Remember that? You're going to sing that and hate me the rest of the week now because that's going to be in your head. These guys hated Daniel. And they ended up trying to kill Daniel and all of that later on. They hated Daniel and the three Hebrew children. And Nathan, if I ever see that little bit or hear that little bit in a skit, I will make your house a dunghill. All right. So look at what happens. So he says, and we've got to get 27 again for the context. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven 
that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be, look at this, in the latter days. So what this tells us is the vision that Daniel is going to describe in Daniel chapter 2 is going to tell us what's going to happen in the latter days of the world. It's telling us in the future. All right, now look at what it says. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Now look at this. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. But for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. And then he gives them the vision. So I want you to see what Daniel did. He responded with humility and he responded with reverence to the God that had given the answer. I wonder for us, lessons from an impossible situation. The first one is that we're supposed to respond with praise. The second is we're supposed to believe him. And then the third is it ought to bring some humility to us. Because when God delivers us from that situation, it's not because of our own wisdom. It's not because of our own strength. It's not because of our own ingenuity and good decisions. It's because of what God has done for us. I think of this, you know, we do question and answer here. And I've talked with pastors, young pastors that take an established church. And I've told them what I did here on Wednesday nights, we do question and answer. And I did that because Pastor Hovestrite was known as a man who really knew God's word. And I think he was 70 years old when he passed away. And now here I come in at 33 years old and people are wondering, who's this young guy? What does he know? And so I wanted to demonstrate the Bible says the pastor's supposed to be not a novice. And so I wanted to demonstrate I wasn't a novice. And so I asked somebody, where did you learn that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why I did it. I don't know where that came from. It had to come from the Lord because I've never been wise in situations like that. That had to come from God. And let me tell you something. That might not mean much to you, but for me as a young pastor in an established church, it helped the situation more than you could ever possibly know. God did that. That's not a Jim Alter thing. And so I made a rule that I'd only answer from Scripture. Whatever people asked me, I'd only answer from the Bible. And so many times somebody would ask me a question, and I'd say, I don't know. Let me study that out, and next Wednesday I'll tell you what the Bible says about that. So now sometimes you'll hear me answer a question and you'll think, man, how does he know that? Because somebody else asked the question, I didn't know the answer to it and I had to go find it from the Bible where that came from. So what wisdom of that is Jim Alters? None. The original idea came from God and all the answers come from his word. What do I have to be proud of? Nothing. That's an example of the way when God helps us through something, we have to realize that it's not us that did it, that every bit of it comes from the Father. It comes from His gracious and benevolent hand. So it's the responsibility to be humble, the responsibility to revere, and the responsibility to praise, and then the responsibility to give the glory to God. So I want you to see what happens. Daniel gives him the, the dream. He explains all of it. Look with me at um, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, look at what it says, Of a truth it is, that you are a god. Is that what it says? No, that your god is a god of gods, and a lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him a great and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of king of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. I want you to see a couple of things here. They're so important. You know what happens when we in the middle of trouble trust and praise and revere our God publicly, other people praise Him. When the deliverance come, when the deliverance comes, other people praise Him. That's such a blessing. I wonder how many Christians could have done better materially in this world. I'm talking about physically. 
I wonder how many Christians could have done better physically in this world if they had lived out their faith publicly and allowed God to elevate them rather than trying to climb the ladder themselves. Because I want you to notice something. This is really important. Don't miss this. Daniel wasn't a preacher. Joseph wasn't a preacher. Do you know what they were? They were administrators. And God allowed ministrators, executives, government people to have a huge influence in the world because in the middle of their responsibilities, they put God first and made that publicly known. What did Daniel do when the king set up the image and said they had to worship it? What did he do? He opened his window and prayed out loud publicly. Why? He wasn't going to worship anything other than the one true God. When you come through an impossible situation, you might be in it. You might be at the beginning of it. You might be in the middle of it. You might have just come through it. What is your relationship like with the Lord? And what would people around you think about your God based on your testimony? You say, man, I don't need any more pressure right now. Is the pressure really on you? Or are you willing to put the pressure on God? I believe my God's going to deliver me. Listen, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I can promise you this. It's going to work together for good because I love God and I'm called for His purpose. God has a plan in my life. Man, when you talk like that out in the world, they look at you like you're crazy. What happens when He delivers you, though? You can look at Him and say, Hey, check it out. That's my God. That's my God. Oh, you think you're better than me. No, man, I'm way worse than you, but I got a great God. I have a great God. Lessons. Lessons from the one true God as He delivers us. The other thing I want you to see is when God delivered him, he didn't just take the deliverance for himself. He wanted to deliver his friends. You know, Christianity isn't designed to make us selfish. The Bible says, remember what Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. When you get in trouble, you need to go to your friends. Perfect example. Here I am. I'm... Uh, schedule-wise, I'm in trouble. I got stuff happening at the house. I can't be there. I just, I'm done. I have no more time. I can't take care of it. So what did I do? I found some friends. <laughs> I said, guys, I'm in trouble. I need help. Can you come? And they all went, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I don't mean you want to go. It's just a blessing that God brings people around you to help you. How many times have you gone through something alone where God had already put the people around you to help you and you're just too proud to ask? I hope there, there are just a couple of things that have come through these several messages. Number one, praise God in the trouble. Praise Him for the deliverance in the trouble before the deliverance comes. Number three, tell people your God is going to deliver you. Tell people so that they can see who you turn to. Make sure your children see who you turn to. And then number four, so important. God has, God has created a support network for His people. It's called the church. I'm not talking about some silly charity. I'm talking about genuine help from God's people who will not only give but will be there when you need help. No, let's flip that around. I'm not talking about Baptist welfare. Don't mooch off of people. Amen? Don't, don't mooch off of God's people. Oh, I'm struggling. It's up to God's people to pay for it. Man, if you've done everything right and you're in trouble, God's people will help you. If you don't want to work, you just need to starve. The Bible says a man would not work, neither should he eat. Is that what the Bible says? Is that hard to understand? No, if you can't work because you're hurt, God's people will step in. If you won't work because you're lazy, die, you gravy-sucking pig. <laughs> That's just what it comes down to. So it's really important that we understand that there is so much trouble. Is that signs of a misspent youth right there? It really is. But just reality, God wants us to be real. If you're in trouble, God's people are here. You ready for this? Even if the trouble is because of your own foolishness, God's people are here. How many of you ever messed up and it's your own fault and you still needed somebody to help you? 
That's what we're here for. Can we finish that with Galatians 6? Let's look at it. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall, shall bear his own burden. You know, it's interesting that everybody knows bear ye one another's burdens. Everybody knows that. I wonder how many people know, but every man shall bear his own burden. You know what that means? If you can help it, don't be a burden to everybody. When you really need help, your brothers are going to bear your burden for you. Isn't that a good balance? The Bible is so clear on all that. So what are we supposed to do? Man, when you come through an impossible situation, you see how you're supposed to behave in it. But when you come through it, come through it with humility, come through it with praise, and remember your brothers who are still in trouble. Remember your sisters who are still in trouble. Amen? On that note, you know there are people that are still in a mess in Texas, people still in a mess in Florida. Got to keep praying for them. Got to keep praying for them. I think of Dr. Angwin. I tried to call him a couple of times this week. He had to evacuate with the, uh, with the hurricane and all of that. We just need to pray for these people. You know, Dr. Angwin's, what, 71 years old or something? Still working away, still, still helping people every day, many hours a day. It's got to be hard for someone in their 70s to evacuate. You know, we need to pray for these people. Aren't you glad we have a great God who knows the future? We have a great God that raises up kings and takes kings down. We have a God who knows the future. I like what Joseph said when he gave the interpretation. He says, interpretation belongs to God. It's all on God. Boy, that takes a lot of pressure off of us, doesn't it? So let's bow our heads. I want to ask you a question. And you don't have to raise your hand. This is just for you, you and God. I wonder how many of us are under pressure. We're under a burden that we really need to give to God. If that's you, man, give that burden to God and then praise Him for His deliverance. And then come to God's people. We'll help. We're here. Let's all stand together.